This episode contains scenes of violence and drug use and may not be suitable for all audiences. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Here it is, back for part two of Altamont. Part two. The, the free, meaty part. Yeah, the free concert. Um, but anyway, that was uh, that was definitely a crazy fun weekend that we just had yeah. before we get into this whole Altamont thing and no. go the complete opposite direction and then just have everything be super dis- sad depressing and, <laughs> and sad. <laughs> Tough to go through, yeah. Yeah, we... Uh, it was my fiance's uh, birthday yesterday, so for the weekend we went to Napa Valley. Now that it's more open, and did a whole Napa Valley thing. Yeah, and um, you know, I took time off under the guise of Easter. I was like, "Oh, Easter! I'm going to take a day off," and uh, really, oh, I, we no. don't celebrate Easter. But um, so, I mean, maybe if we had kids, they'd look for eggs or whatever children do but uh usually we do a family dinner but obviously that's not happening so we instead made a wine getaway out of our easter yeah and it slash was a amber's birthday fantastic time <laughs> it, it's fun to like see things starting to kind of open back up again yeah because you know like we mentioned in the last podcast we're basically all vaccinated now so we're kind of just tapping our foot and waiting for everyone else to get vaccinated and yeah. hope, hoping that you know it, it's rolling that, out quickly i think yeah i actually saw today that california was hoping to completely open and just be n- back to normal quotes hmm. um by june 10th was the date that they put on the news report yeah so we'll see we'll see yeah i think i'll still wear a mask at Trader Joe's for a while. You know? Yeah. There's certain boundaries I've set where I'm actually like, you know what? I don't mind this if I don't get a cold three times a year, you know? Yeah. Like, even just a cold. Like, it's like, yeah, yeah it's it's made you kind of aware of how gross a lot of things were. Um. <laughs> I mean, things have been gross, for sure. No, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Things I mean, have been gross. Yeah, I mean, I've worked in restaurants. I've seen... <laughs> gross um but oh, no. not not like not like not like <laughs> salacious like people um you know doing things to food i'm just gonna say that doesn't happen i've literally never seen that happen yeah. i've worked at 12 different restaurants over a decade or something not even that long maybe eight years and like i've never seen anyone mess with food just yeah. to just to like you know ease that stress <laughs> but like in general it's just kind of like you know like i i think chefs before didn't have to wear masks and that's weird to think about you know like someone preparing your food without like breathing yeah i stuff. mean like it doesn't i don't, I don't yeah get it doesn't it, really bother me i i it like does to not bother me. i like to challenge my immune system in a safe way like if right. it's not like some freaking life-threatening yeah. disease like i think it's important i mean i'm some fucking idiot non-scientist here but i, I think it's important to like challenge your immune system yes. to kind of keep it in shape it's like you know having your uh immune system do a few push-ups every day you know i have like, a hot take about restaurants oh i'm the person that if i get a plate of food and it has a hair in it i just pull it out and keep oh eating. that happened to me in napa i just pull it out and keep eating obviously i'm I like won't. dude this happens oh, no, no, all no. the I'm fucking the time I'm, the I'm not that weird about it i think it's just oh, because like it's tough for me i 
I know it's disgusting, and like I know that people are it's like this pulling is, it out of your mouth. This is the no, no, no. Oh if you God, if you get it in your mouth, that's worst. weird. Yeah. But like if I see a, I don't know. I probably sound like the most disgusting person, but from being in the industry for so long, I'm just like, you know what? This happens. I'm not going to be the person that's like, hey man, between wearing a mask and get Trader me Joe's the manager, <laughs> like get me the manager. There's a well, hair in my food. Right, I'm sending yeah. it back. Like th- that's the line I won't cross where I'm just like, look, like I'm not going to make a scene about yeah. a hair that but fell. But if they that don't give Amber the a candle, then that's that. Well, yeah, no, that, no, 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 no. That, that was big in for sure. <laughs> no, I, so I had an experience actually, it's funny that you brought that up where there was and this is actually one of my bigger pet peeves about eating out because you're already like paying an arm and a leg oh, to, yeah. to do it. Mm-hmm. And you expect it to be, you know, the, the pinnacle. Like I don't have hairs in my own food. So it's like it's the pinnacle of, you know, what you I mean, expect. I guess I'm just a hairier person. My, no, hair, my hair is constantly oh. following. Yeah, yeah, yeah. following my, my head hair. I mean, it's constantly like, falling <laughs> and stuff. And I'm finding it everywhere. I'm like, oh, this is probably But yeah, disgusting. this one was like baked into the dessert. So like oh, no, I ate a that's big bad, piece yeah. of dessert. And then next thing you know, I'm like pulling this like 12 inch hair out of my mouth. Yeah, and you're just bad. like, oh my God. Baked in is pretty tough. Yeah. And they didn't bring Amber her candle. Yeah, that was the worst Gosh, part. Gosh darn it. Yeah, it was, you know, she was like, oh, you know. I don't know what's more unforgivable. We don't have to, you know, it's, uh, it's. It's embarrassing. I don't, you know, whatever. And then I was like, I'm going to, we're going to do it because fuck it. It's Dude, fun. It's not like we, we want to sing. You know? It's not like we went to Chevy's and they're going to like do that Bring little clapping, the yeah, clapping, like, dancing I was song. like, I don't think they're going to sing at us. It, it was like a nice classy restaurant. So I was like, I went up to this woman working there who looked very official. She had a blazer on. The blazer. Yeah. Um, the blazer. <laughs> so I was like, and she was like bossing people around. I was unclear of her role. Um, and I was like, hey, you know, I hope this isn't like, you know, an annoying request, but we have a birthday and I, we, we're already ordering dessert. So first of all, we're not like, bring us free dessert. You yeah. know, I was like, we're going to order dessert, but like, could this young lady at the end get like a candle? It's her birthday. It'd be really special if you could do that. Naturally. And she, with the uttermost confidence was like, oh, I've got you. <laughs> and I was like cool she's like say no more and i was like "Uh uh-huh and i like gave her the thumbs up and like backed away like back to the table i was like yes she's on it and then 20 minutes later we all get our desserts and nothing happens (laughs) and blazer girl disappears i mean unless she thought that it was bring you a giant hair in your (laughs) in your bread pudding then for sure dude i i i'm very sympathetic towards like hospitality staff when like things we go wrong so I, slighted right now I, but, I, but i've been in that position where it's like shit i forgot this one thing and like it's oh damn it like whoops like but i don't know if i had been in that position i think i probably would have come correct with like bringing a free dessert with a candle or, yeah. something, or something like you do something that's like a little like oh shit we fucked up but we'll 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 make it right or like comping a cocktail or something you know that yeah. like if i had re- realized i made a mistake and forgot about something which happened to me all the time you forget about stuff i'd be like oh, okay shit i just gotta make up for it and then we're good so that didn't happen so that was my only where i was like oh she like saw me and like scurried away and i was like <laughs> oh you know you messed up and you don't want to come correct but it's all good we had a beautiful time and other than, uh, yeah, beautiful other than dinner. that like very small experience everything else yeah. was like really great we really made a big deal out of it as like a joke for the trip like yeah <laughs> That, that's more our speed. We're not just here to be monsters on Yelp or whatever. Just so it's no, clear. we're definitely not. <laughs> we're not like for the record. That restaurant, which will not be named, is 
our one of our favorite restaurants ever. It's the best, and it yeah, didn't disappoint. Other than the very tail end of the experience, it didn't. <laughs> it didn't disappoint Which, again. Like yeah. I said, is mostly just like an ongoing joke of like, yeah. oh wow, like it was just what what what's comedic to me is like the confidence of like, oh we got you, and then it just. <laughs> And I was like, oh, okay. it's the blazer that's comedic to me. Like I literally yeah. <laughs> would never wear a blazer, like unless I'm wearing like a suit or something. That's also comedic because she looked so like it's like this is who. Like I went to her on purpose. I was like, she looks like she's like gonna get. Yeah, she's shit wearing done. a blazer. <laughs> like she looks like she's the one. But you know, everything else was perfect. We had such a beautiful time. I saw some old friends from the industry. I probably like embarrassed everyone by like name dropping a lot, which is my ongoing joke. Like I used to work in the wine industry. So when we go wine tasting, it's like how much time goes by before Emily's like, ah, I used to work in the industry. Well, I mean, you basically got us free wine all days. Um, what was it? Monday? Yeah. So, hey, <laughs> drop away. Those, drop those away, tastings dude. are intensely expensive. Yeah, they're expensive. Like, yeah. So if you're, they're just like, yeah, we'll comp them and then give you like 30% off on all your purchases. You're like, shit, well, I'm now I'm spending $150 because yeah, I'm going to buy a bunch of wine. Yeah, we saved a little, a little bread. I mean, we did that. We did the one the first day where I, I was, you know, honest with them. I was like, oh, I used to be industry, but I'm not anymore. I probably could have lied and like busted out a business card, but I'm, I'm not that type of person that just if lies. Only, if only. If only I were, I would have saved us all money. But I was just like, I was like, yeah, you know, I used to be industry, but I'm not anymore. And then everything was like full price and like... I was like, oh, this is wine tasting is so expensive. I mean, we we know that. Like, I knew that being in the industry, but like, you kind of get, yeah, it's it's kind of amazing what uh yeah what people do. But I felt okay about it because I was thinking in my head when I was like spending all this money on tastings <laughs> and wine, and I'm just like, God, this is a lot, you know, for us. I was like, you know what? I'll I'll feel good about like fueling the wine industry right now, like their economy because they had covid and then fire season emily, so let's pretend emily, that we've been single-handedly supporting the wine industry <laughs> <laughs> in this house for like we do we do years. a lot for them we do a How, lot for you're, them. you're you're dude you've been fueling the <laughs> wine industry for like 10 years now i like to think like going to actual wineries is like really the way you support <laughs> them but like no we and that's the way i thought of it like the winery we went to that was like you know we, I, we dropped a lot of money and i was like i'm happy to support this staff and mm -hmm. this whole thing because dude they had a tough year they had covid and then they had fire season which they always have yeah. fire season which is like a pain in the ass and then everyone's like hey did napa burn down should we cancel our trip and it's like it didn't burn down it's just like you know the anyway yeah so happy to help yeah and we'll sh we'll <laughs> shout them out to the you know 50 people <laughs> it's uh orin swift um is a great swift was great winery tasting us. room in in a it's, it's not quite St. Helena now. So it's, it's a little bit outside of St. Helena, It's right? usually in downtown St. Helena, but they have such a small space there that now they've... Uh, they might, Is it called They Oakville? might have the same owners as uh, Louis Martini, but they're currently uh, working out of their uh, property. And I believe that's... Didn't they just build that property too? Yeah, so Louis like, Martini rebuilt would, recently. Yeah. I don't know if that's St. Helena or Rutherford. It's right Rutherford, on that kind yeah, of that. Uh, kind of Rutherford. Rutherford. Yeah, it's, such it's a right bougie. on that kind of. And then in Calistoga, we went to Tank Garage, which is really fantastic. I if you I, like rock and roll, you like Tank. Garage. Yeah, I bring everyone there. Yeah. It's it's just a. Uh, they never make the same wine twice, which is why it's fun. Because every time you go there, it's a completely different experience. They have all new wines, and they have a great staff, and they have sort of like a. They're in a vintage gas station from the 1950s that they've like refurbished, so it's all very like 
unique as yeah. opposed to kind of a stuffy Napa experience in like an old castle like thing, mm-hmm. which is also fun. But this is kind of a more modern. I was kind of trying to think about what Amber would like too. Yeah, but. no, she she really leans on you for that, and I think Aww. we all do for that kind Dude, of it's wine hard. tasting experience. It's so well, it's like a need- it's finding like a needle in a haystack, you know. And well, and when you Google it, like you just get whichever. Uh, uh, wineries, which are mostly the big guns, like you know, owned by Gallo and the Mondavis and whatever, all those just come up on Google yeah. first, and you don't really get a fair shake of like what's going on. So mm-hmm. I do kind of, I did kind of get to work in the industry and and learn about all these kind of, um, you know, smaller wineries and like sort of more unique wineries and like off the beaten path. Um, so so yeah, I'm always yeah. happy to help. It's like my little, I, I get a lot of like joy out of um showing people the valley so yeah for sure it's fun for me and too. it's always been good memories for me and it, it's been good yeah. memories for amber too one of the first uh times she ever visited me when i was living in saint helena with you guys and basically at the birth of this podcast is when all this was happening yeah and um she came up and visited from santa barbara when she was still living there and like we had an amazing weekend in in yeah. wine country and and um it's always been good to me that's for sure i, yeah. I love the napa valley and I, sonoma and all yeah, that it's a special place in my heart um so yeah it was so like it was so good to be back there with all you guys and share it with you. And Alante bought a bottle of wine. Oh my God. Shocking development. I was so excited about that. I was like, what? Yes. Like, yeah. He said it was the first bottle of wine he'd ever bought for himself. I love which was that. Uh, which was a little shocking, but then also not shocking if you know Alante. Yeah, so. he did. You know, he was like, oh, I don't need to do the wine tasting. And I was like, why don't you like share with Monica? You know, and, I mean, it wasn't like it was my idea, but I'm not trying to take credit. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, try it, you know, try stuff. But I mean, that's the point of wine tasting, right? It's like, it's like you it, think, because you know? like no one likes anything until they kind of acquire a taste for it, you know? And yeah. and what wine tasting allows you to do is go, I don't like that. I don't like that. You know what? This one I kind of like. And yeah. then you're like, well, that's a varietal that I appreciate. So then next thing you know, you start trying out that varietal a bunch. And then you find what you like. Yeah. And the beautiful thing about, about, um, about wine tasting as well and just keeping your sort of mind open is that so you're going to find varietals that you didn't know you love like I found like Petit Verdot which is like usually never on its own but I found that and I realized I love that and then I seek that out and then you find new wineries through the varietal but also like you know I used to tell people um there are some very polarizing wines like Merlot is one Chardonnay is one. Oh, I don't drink Chardonnay I hate it I hate it all oh I don't drink Merlot I don't like Merlot that's from sideways as we had all conversation about yeah. it. Oh, I don't like Pinot Noirs. So people kind of do get stuck in those. And then I always try to tell them like, it's cool that you've, you've definitely like wine tasted and decided like, okay, I don't like this style of Pinot Noir mm-hmm. or I don't like this style of Chardonnay, but there's so many ways to make wine differently mm-hmm. that it's, you should try a French Chardonnay. You should try an oat Chardonnay. You should try a steel, steel laid Chardonnay. You should try a Surlead Chardonnay. Like there's so many different ways to play with these grapes and like Merlot, like any of them. So they can wear so many different like costumes depending on the winemaker. It's kind of like being like, I don't like the color blue. So anything with blue in it, I'm just over. And And there's so many shades of blue. Exactly. So it's like, well, they're not all neon blue, you know, or like whatever weird thing you didn't like. So I, that was my goal as a wine educator is I was always trying to be like, keep an open mind. Like if any, if someone was ever like, oh, I just don't like that. I was like, well, what didn't you like? And anyway, I, I love that sort of 
I don't know, bringing people to kind of like see new things that they love. And, and Alante like, you know, kind of surprised me too. Cause he picked a really like, like unique, sophisticated kind of like really different, um, white wine that like, I, like if I were to guess like, what would Alante like? Like, I'd probably think, okay, he liked that one red well, wine that one time and try to think about it. Yeah. But like, I never would have been like, well, let's try this funky well, he white. Liked that one and he liked it. It had, it had qualities that are similar to whiskey qualities. Like it had like a tobacco like note to it. Yeah. And, um, a lot of whiskeys have tobacco notes to yeah. it. So I think maybe that was, and it was like not very sweet. Exactly. But also yeah. he doesn't like the chalky dryness. So it was like, it was yeah. like a combination of all those things that I think maybe led him to like that one. Um, but even like, I'm a, I'm a whiskey guy. Like that's pretty yeah. much all I drink now. And, um, other than water and, and other that, that kind of stuff and coffee. <laughs> For me, it's like coffee, water and wine, coffee, water. And, wine. and, um, we started doing those, uh, whiskey tastings like on our YouTube channel. And like, that kind of gives me a better sense of what different things taste like. Yeah. Like the blind taste that we do, which is a lot of fun. And we should you guys definitely... really impressed me with your palettes on that. Like, Well, we have one that we haven't released because it was Christmas-themed and we just didn't get it in time. Oh, yeah. And then there was another one that we just did release. And I think out of all of us, we were like... Tom was like 10 for 10, and we were like 8 for 10. Yeah, you guys are... So we were right there. If I were to, yeah, be... Well, you're you're recognizing qualities in a whiskey and going, this is what an American whiskey tastes like. This is what yeah. Irish. And that's, that's all that wine tasting is when it gets like, I don't want to say competitive, but like more sophisticated is, you yeah. know, I, I don't have a like great they taste of different regions or like, Oh, this is like the Southern Rhone or whatever. Well, that's, the the, that's when it gets su- like super insane with like Psalms. And like, I definitely worked uh, at a winery where all the wine educators were like certified and I never got my Psalm. Like I just, I realized that you didn't need it to work in the industry. But when I worked like uh, in more admin positions at wineries, uh, one of the ones I worked at, everybody on the tasting room floor was like really highly educated in wine. And every morning on like once a week, we'd have a, like a all, all staff meeting. So we'd come down and um, we'd do a wine tasting and it was always blind and they're always like arguing over what everything is. And they're like, this is definitely a Malbec. I know Malbec. This is a Malbec. And like, we're, you know, me and all my like, you know, kind of admin friends are just like, or we were wine club, but you know, we're, we're just sitting there kind of like enjoying tasting all this different stuff and like kind of guessing. And like, I thought it was fun seeing like the more quote unquote novices guess and be like, ah, I don't know. I think this is probably, they'd be like, is this old world? Is this new world? Like, they would they would bring in uh, our winemaker would bring in wines that we were currently making. So like, can you recognize uh, wines from different areas of our property? But then they would also bring in just wild cards. Like they'd they'd like pull from their personal collection and bring like some weird like Albarino from Spain and like put it against like a French white and be like, what are these? And yeah. like the the experts could identify them and it blew my mind that's wild for me yeah. it's kind of like listening to to like when i was in music training there were some folks that could identify a note just by hearing it and it didn't matter if they heard a different note so there's two types of like perfect pitch there's yeah. like relative pitch 
and then there's like just perfect pitch and that's pitch recognition i guess two types of pitch recognition and i have kind of a sense where i hear one note against another note so i hear mm. one note and then i'll hear another note and i'm like oh well that note is this based on the first note I yeah heard. i i know what c sounds like so i can well, no, I'm, I'm trying you, to, I'm you trying play to, me a, you play me a C. Okay. So then when you play a G, I'm like, well, that's the fifth. So it's a G. Got it. And that, it, and, it, that it. and you, you recognize the sound of the interval, the color of it or whatever mm-hmm. you want to say. Yeah. And then there are people with perfect pitch who just hear a note and they can go, that's a C without, without, a reference. E- without any reference. And they can even be like that C's, but that's a C, but it's like five cents flat. You need to tune that piano. Like, and, and it's, you're, you're just born with and that. Some people are just born with it, or maybe it's something that got trained when you were like super duper young. Yeah, and then you you know how people who when it's they're just, being trained when they're like three or four they just right. pff, grow up with that. So I don't know. I've never had that. I can't do that. Sometimes now I'll recognize a chord. And I'm like, oh, that's the first chord from you know, give me shelter or whatever. And then yeah. I'm like, well, th- I know that that chord's this, so yeah. that's what it is. That's kind of like if you and gave that's me as close as I can get. It's like if you gave me three reds. And we're like, one of these is a Pinot Noir. And I'm yeah. like, all right, this is a Pinot Noir. And then I could probably guess. Yeah. No, totally. What? Or I don't know. I That's th- not so a great my whole but, thing. But yeah. to tie, my whole thread to tie this all together was I, I feel like some psalms are the same with their taste buds as they are with people with perfect pitch. Yeah. Where they're just like, oh, that is such an obvious taste to me. It's like if you or I see that painting and we're like, well, that painting has mustard yellow, navy blue, you know, pink and uh neon pink and mm-hmm. white yeah like we can just look at it and see that but if you couldn't see color the same way that we see color you you would you would you wouldn't know what the colors were maybe well there's like there's so a- that's the way i picture people with perfect pitch they're like oh well there's a c in there a d yeah. sharp you know and i think with people maybe psalms are like oh well i can taste this note this note this note and this note and i know that that's characteristic of this so exactly and i think it's a lot of it is uh uh, one other thing I learned that's really fun is is just identifying, um, identifying smells and tastes, and just keeping your, as they say, like your palate and your your nose fresh. Like you go to the grocery store and you smell the cilantro and you smell the, all the herbs and you smell everything and like you smell coffee grounds and you smell tobacco and you smell like like you just are constantly kind of like keeping that fresh mm-hmm. so that when that hits your palate, you can just immediately identify yeah. it because i do that a lot when yeah. i'm wine tasting where i'm like oh that tastes like it tastes familiar but and you're not like, sure what oh, it is, what is it? it's yeah. familiar yeah and that would drive me crazy and yeah. we had this great i had a great coworker who had all these little spices and a little like vials that he would like bring out when he did wine tastings and he was like what do you think this is what do you think this is and like show you the difference between like starbucks coffee grounds and like really nice coffee grounds and then like talk about that in a wine it it there's just so much you can do with it and it's really exciting but it is similar to i think there's a similar like uh built-in skill like a born skill like psalms will talk about like your palate and just be like oh he has just a really good palate like he can just taste more flavors than i can because you know somebody you smoke or you do whatever that affects your palate and i think perfect pitch is similar where there there is something either learned early on yeah or like just there everything is scalable like every single trait every single characteristic skill whatever it might Mm -hmm. be it's on a scale like almost nobody is like one for one yeah you know so and you can really learn too. Like, yeah, you can really teach yourself. But uh, other than the wine tasting, since this podcast might go long anyway, and we just 
freaking ranted about wine, <laughs> which is good. I like talking about that kind of stuff. But, yeah, uh, we, we break ourselves in, but we, we should get We also into- played, uh, speaking of a different wine country, we played uh, Monica's in Livermore, which was a great time. It was the first time we'd ever oh, yeah. played there. We met the owner, and she was really nice, and the crowd was responsive. It was just nice to be out and playing Elvis again. was there. Oh, Gary Glitter. <laughs> An Elvis impersonator was there who looked a lot like Gary Glitter. And yeah. he, he was he had a lot of opinions about the sound. But a lot of opinions. <laughs> and But I digress. So to, to kind of tie that in, we played and I was actually thinking about this while we were there, is Livermore is like seven, eight minutes away from where this festival happened, this Altamont Festival. Oh, interesting. I didn't happening. connect that. Yeah, it's right in the Altamont Pass. You know where all those windmills are? If you take the 580 yeah, yeah, yeah. and you're like going yeah. going maybe uh, head towards the 5 South or whatever, mm. um, that is where Altamont Speedway is. All right, so Altamont Part 2. Um, if you haven't heard Part 1, you should probably go back and listen to it. <laughs> Um, but, it, I mean, if you just want to hear about the concert, that's pretty much what this episode is. So, the sure. last time was, like, a lot of build-up to it. and Lead into we- how how the Hell's Angels yeah. got connected to this counterculture scene and specifically were introduced to all these rock and roll musicians. Yeah. So, basically, it's setting the scene. Um, yeah. The Rolling Stones are on tour. It's 69. They're um, they're in New York currently at Madison Square Garden where they filmed one of their most famous concerts. Uh, the Maisels hmm. brothers filmed this, and they were also working on this film uh, rock doc that was kind of sponsored by Mick Jagger. I think he had seen the Monterey Pop Festival kind of blow up, and like that whole kind of you know those realistic docs where they don't have like a narrator talking behind it it's but just it's just like clips of people chatting yeah, and hanging out and yeah music and, it, and then it's totally. very natural it's yeah, like yeah, a yeah. naturalized rock doc yep. kind of like how you know spinal tap is like a mockumentary yep it's it's the same style <laughs> as spinal tap but for real we gotta watch that as a house it's so good <laughs> but um so the Maisels were basically trying to make this rock doc and Mick Jagger. Of course, the Stones were really trying to make a fast buck at this time. Any time, any way they could make money away from their like manager and the guy who was bottlenecking all their funds. Mm-hmm. He was just this corrupt like piece of crap, uh, Alan Klein. Any money they could get away from him, they were trying to do that. So they yeah, had yeah. thrown this tour together in order to try to get that money back. And um, and then they also were trying to get this rock documentary. So they hired the Maisels to like film them recording at Muscle Shoals. They had them, you know, filming their concerts, just their hanging out, like whatever. And so they were at Madison Square Garden, and it's abundantly clear now that the Rolling Stones are the biggest band in the world. They're the biggest band, wow. hands down. And they play Madison Square Garden. I think it's like two or three nights, and uh, they just blow the roof off the place. They're like completely in in their element in sync with each other they've you know been playing an entire tour at this point even though it's just like 12 shows up to this point it's still they're they're like a well-oiled machine they're just crushing it and if you watch those um those madison square garden performances in 69 um you'll see you'll see exactly what the concert was like at that time so back meanwhile back in uh the san francisco bay area their uh, their tour manager uh, Sam Cutler, he 
was meeting up with uh, the the Grateful Dead folks, and mm-hmm. they introduced him to one of uh, their Hell's Angels friends who had kind of, again, the Hell's Angels and the Dead were friends because of the security that the angels could provide at the shows, and also they uh, ran dis- distribution for the Grateful Dead sound guy, um, Owsley Stanley. He had a whole LSD manufacturing operation yeah. going on, and the Grateful Dead basically used the not the Grateful Dead Owsley used the Angels to, to kind of di- the drugs distribute the drugs around the Bay Area, not just during the concerts, just, just around the general, Bay Area, just in general. Area. Yeah, and some of the Angels were started to become more close to the dead and maybe even the Hell's Angels, even though they were like, well, I'm, I am a Hell's Angel, but. Like there was this one gentleman, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. He um he was basically the main guy who communicated with Owsley hmm. and they were like best friends. Aww. So he was a he was definitely one of the main people who, in terms of distributing. So um back there they had introduced um Sam Cutler to one of these angels. He takes him on a bike to Ken Kesey's house, who yeah. is with the Merry Pranksters and the the Beat Poets and and all those guys. And at, it was at Ken Kesey's house that it was a famous conversation between Sam Cutler and the Angels. Um, that uh, the Angels would work security and you know keep people off the stage, get traffic going from the backstage to the front of the stage. Um, and that would that would be for five hundred dollars worth of beer is what they hired the angels for. Ridiculous. That was it, just five hundred dollars yeah. worth of beer. And this was not well communicated within the angels community. Yeah. Like Sonny Barger later, he's the head of the Oakland chapter. He later said we were just promised five hundred dollars worth of beer and keep people off stage. That was it. Yeah, I saw in the Rolling Stones article that I was reading that um, after the aftermath of the violence um, when Sonny was asked to talk about it, he was like, we were not, whether or not this is true. He was like, we were not uh, like told the gravity of the situation of this concert, which, which probably is true. It's like, you know, there's going to be 300,000 people and your, your couple hundred guys are going to be in charge of like keeping them off the stage. Like, I think, I think it's true that they, they, uh, that it was, um, well, poorly fucking planned as we, as we're going <laughs> to get poorly, into, yeah. but just, yeah. So his, his sort of defense for his men is that, oh, well we, we didn't know what the fuck we were agreeing to. Um, yeah. Um, and back in San Francisco, they were still trying to secure permits for the show. Hmm. So the dead, they, they were in close contact with the stones, but as time wore on with the stones and tour and everything's everything in flux, you know, they're constantly being pulled in different directions and they're doing their own personal stuff like drugs and women and alcohol. Mm -hmm. And then they're also traveling constantly. So there's this whole thing with the stones where they're just impossible to get a hold of. And, um, by this time, the kind of communication between the dead and the rolling stones has has broken down quite a bit. So the dead, they have their guy, uh, Bert Kanigson, um, who from the last episode, he's kind of like the permit guru. Hmm. He was the guy oh. who was able to get all the permits for all the free concerts that was going, that were going on at the time. And, um, the stones had one of their tour managers. Um, I don't think it was Sam Cutler. I think it was someone, I think it was someone else, hmm. um, in their, in their entourage, basically called them and said, we already are in contact with the mayor and it's all good. 
and it was not all good. Yeah, it, it was sound not like it. all good. So, um, they said the Stones worked out directly for, with the mayor, and in all their hubris, they failed to realize that the San Francisco mayor was no fan of hippie culture at all. They didn't. Yeah, they didn't know it. Not. They didn't. They didn't know the the lay of the land at all. They're yeah. just like we're the Stones. We're the biggest band in the world. They're gonna bend the knee it's and just be, be like, yeah, they'll be so grateful. Yeah. that we're here. And and uh, not to mention they were enlisting like a bunch of people like to to someone that like didn't know them at all. Like the mayor didn't know them all. Like it, we take for granted that like like oh you didn't know you don't know who the Rolling Stones are. But mm-hmm. think about the time. Why would the mayor give a fuck who the Rolling Stones are? He doesn't care. Yeah. So. Um. This one guy, I actually just saw my notes. Who did it? This, uh, it was. He's a really weird character in this story. This man, John James, he shows up when the Angels first show up in Los Angeles, and he says he works for the car companies. And he's like, "We've got all your cars," and they're like, "Okay." And so he shows up with like half a dozen cars and a bunch of like off-duty police officer, like tough guys. He's like, "They'll work security, and we have your cars." His name's John James, and he kind of weaseled his way like a parasite into the inner circle of the Rolling Stones. They never met or heard of him or knew that he was going to be there before the tour, but he just kind of showed up and like wound his way into their situation. Hmm. So this man, John James, was attempting to organize the biggest free concert. It was it was him who called, and he cut out the dead and was like, I'm going to make this my thing. Which is crazy that he went from this guy who just showed up with a bunch of Chryslers and now he has, you know, no knowledge and no experience and now he's about to try to throw the biggest free concert in the history of the planet at this time. Kind of reminds me of the Fire Festival, but carry on. (laughs) (laughs) The mayor's office shut it down immediately. Immediately. So then they're like, this is going to be a shit show. Yeah. So they needed to find a new venue. They weren't going to play at the Polo Fields, Golden Gate Park. Um, that whole vision of like a bunch of bands all over the park, you know, which is like the modern, hardly strictly hardly bluegrass strictly or, yeah. or outside lands or something like that. It wasn't going to happen. So they, they needed to find a new venue. So they looked in Sonoma, that the, uh, the Sonoma Sears Point Raceway. Hmm. Now, this seemed to be a really good option at the time. It had adequate parking. It had toilets already. The infrastructure was already there. Yeah. And more than enough space. But when Sam Cutler went to visit it, he turned it down because he said it was unesthetically pleasing, likely thinking about like the Maisel's movie that they were making. Mm. And he's like, I want it to be visually appealing like the rolling hills of Woodstock, you know? Shit. So at this point, thoroughly unacceptable. And, uh, the biggest issue was that no one was really in charge. Um, John James was kind of in charge. Sam Cutler was kind of in charge. The Grateful Dead, they were kind of in charge. But which, which makes for a lot of, a lot of in cooks my in the experience, kitchen. a lot of cooks in the kitchen, but also when there's not like a clear, you're in charge of this, you're in charge of this, you're in charge of this, things yeah. just fall through the cracks. Yeah. And was, then a lot like, of stuff doesn't get figured out. It was like a classic like hippie commune-like situation. Um, playing out in a concert planning committee, yeah. basically. 
Um, everyone had an idea and none of their ideas aligned. Many saw it as a capitalist enterprise. Some saw it as like a performative enterprise. Who would the vendors be? Are the angels, you know, do we really want the angels for security? Where would it be? It was so unaligned, um, just completely unaligned, that at one point they were going to call this festival, and I quote, this is from the diggers, the guy who put on the the human bee in festival, which was like the first large free concert. Oh, yeah, the bee. The yeah. Grogan guy. He, he said that it should be called the, quote, Charles Manson Memorial Hippie Love Death Cult Festival. Oh, no. <laughs> so there's our Charles Manson reference. There's our Charles Manson reference. <laughs> but literally, that's what they were going to call this free festival at one point. Wait, so, and this is after... This is so August '69 is the the Manson murder. So this is after that, and they're yeah, thinking so, of glorifying. Well, him. he's a San Francisco hippie, and I don't really have the details on what, like the you know the the reason why they wanted to call it the oh no the motive for that. But that was definitely on the table. I mean, he was in jail, and maybe they didn't know his full. Um, Ugh, that's cr- yeah they might yeah it might not have all been out to light of like how that exactly went down so he went to jail and they were all maybe kind of like people were still on the fence about him or not maybe Ooh, that's okay well that's tough yeah so carry so, on. <laughs> now we're at 12 4 this is the thursday before the concert thursday friday saturday concert day okay this is the thursday before the concert the free concert mm-hmm. ken clapp was the vp of the sonoma raceway and he made his way to the scene and saw hippies working on this stage. Sorry. So they ended up turning it down, and then they were like, you know what? We don't really see anything else. Fuck it. Let's just do it. Do it so, here. Yeah. Yeah. So um, they saw hi- he saw hippies working on this stage, and he was just completely appalled. He was like an old school conservative guy. It's a raceway. Like, think NASCAR and like, yeah. the, that crowd. So... They promptly wanted to cancel their their handshake deal with everybody. And in addition, uh, Film Whale, the company that owned the raceway, they they just randomly owned the raceway. And they also sponsored the Stones' previous shows in L.A. So this is like a company, um, again, Filmway. They own this Sonoma raceway. Mm-hmm. And they also felt slighted by Rolling Stones' concerts in L.A. that had happened prior in this tour. Hmm. Um, there was a show that got canceled with no explanation because at this point we kind of talked about it last time the sound was always shitty like power would fail maybe the stones wouldn't show up till two in the morning like it was very disorganized and for one reason or another the show just got canceled in la with no explanation Hmm. so they were pissed they were also mad at the stones because the stones were notoriously very aggressive in their negotiation tactics. Mm. So they would, you know, say it's this or nothing, this or nothing, and just you know not leave any room for common ground. Yeah, because they are the biggest band in the world. Yeah, well, at this time, as you, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, they were Filmway was pissed, so they decided um, once they found out that the movie was being filmed. Hmm. That in yeah. order for them to allow them to have the Sonoma Raceway, they would need complete distribution rights and $100,000 up front. Oh, that's not going to happen. It, and it did not happen. They had the Stones in a very compromising position because we're two days away from the concert. Remember, like Mick Jagger and Keith Richards and all those cats, they want to be like super hip and cool. So they yeah. really want to throw this free concert to kind of, you know, 
fold themselves into and this. And it's already been promised. Yeah, it's people already been promised. People know about it. Yeah, people know and, about it. And they're trying to fold themselves into this this hippie, awesome hippie scene, which has like the coolest bands in the world, the coolest publication in the world, Rolling Stone. Yeah. Um, the coolest. Uh, just everything was the coolest in that in that era in that in San Francisco during that era. So they want to like fold themselves into that. So they really wanted this free concert. They were in a compromising position because of that. Yeah. So then Dick Carter of the Altamont Speedway, another speedway. And this is like a demolition derby speedway. It's yeah. not like a NASCAR speedway. It's like, a, it is not a nice speedway. A big. Like, you know what a demolition derby is? Yeah. Yeah. It's like a <laughs> demolition derby speedway, basically. Yeah. Um, he was a former race car driver, a used car dealer, and he had just taken over the speedway. He was going broke and desperately needed the publicity, basically. Perfect. Perfect storm. So he volunteered the raceway for free. Wow. Completely for free. So Scully, How could you say no to Yeah. That? So, so Rock Scully, the Grateful Dead man- manager, uh, Sam Cutler, the... Tour the, manager, uh, tour manager of, the great, of the Rolling Stones. Yeah. And Michael Lang, who they called in last second, who uh, put on Woodstock. Michael Lang was one of the, the okay. guys who put on Woodstock, so he knows free concerts. So they're like, we're going <laughs> to yeah. listen to this guy for sure. Yeah. They hopped in a helicopter, and they went down to check out the Altamont Speedway. Um, there were abandoned cars from the Demolition Derby just stacked all over the place. Um, there was broken glass. Yeah, this is your free venue. I mean, not a tree in sight. A complete dust bowl. Yeah, uh, trash everywhere. And as they're in the the helicopter, Cutler is like, "I don't know about this." You know, yeah. he thinks it looks even less aesthetically pleasing than the Altamont. Uh, I'm sorry, than the, the uh, Sonoma, Sonoma spot. Yeah, spot. And uh, right on cue, Michael Lang, the Woodstock guy, was like, "This is perfect." And once he put his stamp of approval on it, they're everyone like, else was just like. Well, if he Let's says it's it. perfect, yeah. we should probably do it. And once once they uh, had their location, you know, the proprietor agreed to it. They right. got the stamp of, of approval from Michael Lang, the Woodstock guy. Yeah, we're what, and they were day desperate, before? and day they were before? held over a barrel by Filmway for the money and the distribution rights of the the video of the movie. That right. clearly Mick they Jagger didn't, didn't want to share because right. he's already having money trouble. Um, they had their location at this point, so they've changed the location. Within 48 hours or less than 48 hours? It was like um, the day before? Like? They had 36 hours to strike the Sears Point location and move the concert south. And wow. the con- what is it, like almost 100 miles south? At least like Probably. 70 or 80, right? Yeah. So, I mean, they had already built all this stuff. And just a kind of a little aside back, because everyone was calling this like Woodstock West, and everyone has like a really I- idyllic view of Woodstock, but I thought it was an interesting note that uh, the author, and again, I forgot to mention, it It, it was uh, Altamont, The Rolling Stones, The Hells Angels, and The Inside Story of Rockstar Could Stay by Joel Selvin. Mm. And we've also read uh, the Rolling Stone article and and all that, and a lot of other publications. But basically, everyone at this time thinks of Woodstock as like this super idyllic situation where there's all this peace and love and all this all this crap that Mm -hmm. in in actuality it wasn't as peaceful as everyone thinks of course not there were four over 400 bad acid trips at woodstock that like really fucked people up i mean there were i think a bunch of like rapes and and stuff like that no murders 
Um, but they also burned down a, <laughs> like they burned down a hot dog stand at one point at Woodstock, Ooh. and uh, oh, and close to hundred thousand people broke down the fences and and just rushed the festival. So Woodstock was completely hijacked. Yeah. Uh, at one point, hundred thousand people rushed the stage. But I think there wasn't the powder keg of heavy assault on the concert goers like there will be here. Yeah. And I mean, we can talk more about the differences later, maybe, but. Um, definitely Woodstock was not the super peaceful, idyllic situation that it was always, you know, seen as, even though it was very successful and it, you know, it's still considered one of the greatest festivals of all time. And, and rightfully so there's a lot of good things that happen with Woodstock, but it's easy to kind of sweep the, the shitty things under, under the rug. Ro- we'll romanticize it. And then, also, there's a lot of footage from Woodstock, yeah. and so that can sort of be the living document of it, you know. Yeah. So and along with other people being, but but know, the main thing about that. like ignoring or not bringing to light the bad things about these festivals, which were is very you new, don't learn. is you don't learn anything yeah. exactly. Yeah. And and the less you learn, the less you're prepared. So anyway. I wanted to bring up again, like how back in the day, um, 67, back in the day, 66, when they were manufacturing this LSD, it was very pure. And, uh, a lot of the people who took it, like had this pristine view of it. Mm -hmm. Like I'm going to take this and have a very, you know, targeted trip where I learn more about myself and I learn more about the world and, and whatever. And, by 69, there was a lot of amphetamine-laced, uh, strychnine-laced, um, speed-laced LSD. And also, they weren't just taking LSD to go on this pristine trip. They were taking LSD and alcohol and smoking weed and doing all this stuff. So it, combined, it yeah. made people extremely skittish and paranoid and, and like agitated. Wow. Like combinations of all those things. Especially like the speed. Yeah. Like, it's unbelievable. Well, they're trying to stay up, right? So yeah. It's like drinking and doing speed to stay up, and then, yeah, yeah. So, at this time, people weren't even really sure where the event was going to be held. Local radio stations were still saying it was at the Sonoma Point Speedway. Yeah. And then, finally, right, but like, the day of the concert, it finally, like, went out. And this also kind of raised the mystique of it because it was like this mysterious concert that was moving. Is it real? What's going on? Are the Stones really going to play a free concert? Yeah. Like there was like this weird mystique to it too. Yeah, where it's like you almost can't help but but go just to see if it's actually happening. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And um, so finally the day of the event, it was confirmed that it was at Altamont Speedway. So the day pe- of the day, uh, sorry, the the day before, sorry, the oh, day before. Even, yeah, I mean, people even that. were pouring in uh, the night before the event when the stage was being built. People were pouring in by the tens of thousands. Holy shit! So people were, and if you've ever driven along five eighty, um, going to I five South, it's a not. I mean, it's expanded over the years, but at the time, it was not a. It was not a long freeway. You can a large freeway, wide freeway. You can see photos of this event, and uh, it's just cars parked for ten. You know, ten miles. Cars parked on the side of the road, 
And at this at this time, the county didn't even know that there was going to be a massive free concert. So, wow. like in the book, they painted as this one guy just doing his normal rounds, you know, trying to find if people are like cow tipping or like smoking oh weed God, in a car discovers. somewhere. <laughs> and he drives up this one like uh, sheriff, and he sees just tens of thousands of hippies like pouring over these hills, and he's like, "What the hell is going on?" Oh my God, no idea. So he realizes the com- the situation is completely out of the sheriff's or local jurisdiction's hands. They, they cannot control this. They, they yeah. do not have the size to control this. They can't. At all. And um, so the most that the police can do at this point is tow cars that are parked in the middle of the freeway. That's wow. it. So if cars are parked off to the side, they're like, whatever. But if, if cars are parked in the middle of the freeway, they'll, move they'll, they'll get it Jesus. towed eventually. But yeah. I mean, there were traffic jams and and for for up to 20 miles in either direction oh, I believe going it, yeah. here and people are like what is this traffic? yeah <laughs> yeah oh my god so this crowd was much different than the normal free concert hippies like i said who were more involved with lsd and, and marijuana um this was like a booze and cocaine crowd from oh. what everyone like eyewitnesses say Hmm. um people were drinking heavily people were doing tons of cocaine and when the 70s started to approach people started doing a lot more cocaine um and in addition to lsd and magic mushrooms and speed and all this kind of stuff and they were way more volatile and they also weren't just san francisco people yeah. Like, because a lot of the people in the heart of San Francisco, this was old hat to them, so they knew the drill. You know, be chill, like don't cause a scene, like just enjoy the music. Yeah. And a lot of people are coming from you know all over the United States, Philadelphia, New York, Midwest, the South, mm-hmm. and it just they didn't have the experience because when when like I mentioned in the last podcast. The Stones tickets were so expensive, the common man couldn't really afford to go. Yeah. So when there was news of a free concert for the Rolling Stones for the first time there in the States in like four years or three years or whatever it was, um, they came pouring in from all over the country just to California. And then once they found the location, they They, they just figured in. it out. Yeah. yeah, they completely poured in. So there were bad omens leading up to this that just abounded people were tearing down the local barns and local fencing so like there were and you're familiar with the livermore area like it's a lot of ranches right a lot of especially back then yeah Cowtown ranches uh there's just a lot of like very large swaths of land where people have their cows and they have Mm -hmm. fences around that land so these hippies they're there the night before they're cold it's the livermore hills i mean it gets very cold they would tear down these fences and turn it into campfires. They would tear down barns Jesus. and turn it da- into campfires. What so they're they're tearing everything down that they can see to turn into campfires, um, which is really lame of them to and do. destructive to the community. Yeah, yeah holy people's uh, yeah the vac the vacaville the Livermore community. <laughs> I was thinking Cowtown vacaville. Cowtown vacaville, which <laughs> is Livermore, North Bay, Yeah, the Livermore community was just super shook because. Um, people, you know, ranchers and their entire livelihood is in their cattle. Their cattle would just disappear and they'd be gone. Shit. So there were there were tons of of ranchers that ended up like filing lawsuits um, because their their entire livelihood was just completely Corrupted fucked by, by this, this concert. one event. Yeah, 
Yeah. Which is wild. So, again, bad omens were abound. Um, thir- uh, the the $3,500 custom carrying cases for the sound system was also pillaged for firewood. Whoa. <laughs> um, Geraldine, a volunteer, was watching the backstage gate, and a group of Honda motorcyclists, not to be confused with the Hells Angels, a bunch of Honda motorcyclists, <laughs> drove up one grabbed her held her down as the others rode into the festival and then let her go i mean it's a free concert not sure why you have to do that but they they uh basically um strong armed their way into the the um the backstage area of the festival um with no words just they showed up grabbed her through to the ground and like held her down until everyone was gone and then they they drove off um Grail Marcus, and I, I think his name's Grail, G-R-E-I-L, Marcus of Rolling Stone uh, mentioned that people were very defensive of their space. Uh, people were pushing and shoving. Yeah. They weren't like the friendly, peaceful hippies. People No, were, they'd gotten there the night before, and they'd done a bunch of drugs and burned down a couple barns for warmth, and they're on edge. Yeah, there was, <laughs> there was no friendly chatter. There was no. a for- foreboding air to the event, he noted. And uh, he decided, you know, in the spirit of Woodstock or whatever, to, like, offer his neighbor, like, part of his sandwich. And uh, this kind of, like, epitomizes the whole mood. He said that his neighbor slapped it out of his hand to the ground and said, I don't want your fucking sandwich, man. <laughs> like, Jesus. just, like, aggressive people at this at this thing. Yeah. Um, so... Again, cars were piling up in every direction. There were no em- emergency roads at this point. Emergency were just simply not available. Um, the tow trucks couldn't keep up to keep the roads clear. And the so people are getting desperate because they can't get in too. <laughs> yeah, and the yeah. Alameda County Sheriff's Office uh, actually w- they were able to get a restraining order on the festival. So they try to find out who's in charge of their little restraining order. And they're like, you guys got to get out of here. And everyone just laughed them out of the building. They're just like, LOL. Like, we're we're not going anywhere. Best of luck with that. Yeah. So, again, LSD was everywhere. And because it's not in the pure form, uh, it it caused people to be erratic and violent. So what happened is, in the spirit of, you know, the late 60s, as some are ought to do, uh, a, a big fad that was happening at the time was like like spiking the punch or whatever. Like you go to a party and you drop some LSD in the punch and then everyone at the party is tripping out and you're like, Oh, so <laughs> not, not just, yeah, not No, booze. no, yeah, yeah, spiking the punch with like LSD. So people were kind of taking this and being like, ha-ha, let's, let's you know, get this party started. And they were spiking their, their uh, wine jugs because this was a, big boozy crowd that a lot of people had um wine jugs later they uh they'll say there were tens of thousands of broken wine jugs found at the event i saw yeah i saw a reference in the rolling stone article to like a really cheap like giant you know magnum of like cheap rosé that they were drinking i'm like no that's interesting that they're drinking wine and like the heat and there's no but but but. the common thread here is that almost anyone who like took a a a rip from a jug just a sip of a wine jug is now is now fully on lsd yeah is dosed and they're on lsd just yeah. on a different type of LSD with, you know, speed and amphetamine and all that shit. And booze, yeah. And booze, and they're just not having a good time. And no one's having a good time. There were uh, bad acid trips abound. It caused a complete outbreak throughout the entire festival. Um, 
And then at this point, it became clear that there was almost no medical presence at this at yeah. this festival. So people are having these horrible acid trips. And if you watch the Maisel's film, you can see some you know bad trips, oh, and no. uh, people are having a tough time. Um, oh. There there were a few medical volunteers, but they were so severely understaffed that only the worst cases could make their way to the tent. And uh, yeah, they, the uh, the Hell's Angels were no you know exception to the partying and the excessive drinking and drug yeah, use. So the security is partying. Yeah, the Hell's Angels surrounded the stage as they were told to do, and um, they were simultaneously drink- drinking the cheap red wine, beer, liquor, and whatever drugs were available. A lot of uh, a lot of amphetamines and a lot of um, uh, cocaine. Uh, marijuana, that sort Oof. of thing. A lot of, lot of aggressive-sounding drugs that make you aggressive. Now Alcohol there, and cocaine. Like, there are some, quote, good Hells Angels during the event. There are some that took their custodial duties, like, very seriously. Like, the Maisel's photographers and filmmakers each were assigned angels to, like, kind of, to to walk them around. Okay. So, those, some of those guys, like, really, really took their job seriously and did you know help people get to the medical tent or help people find but for the for the most part the the angels that were causing the the ruckus were kind of the younger unproven um oh like almost trying to prove their well it was yeah a lot of the prospects so prospects are are usually (laughs) young guys who aren't paid at all to be there they're basically volunteering their time to be like the hell's angels bitches basically they're like Mm. we'll do anything you say and they want to prove themselves so they're like going out of their way to like show that they're hard and they're dope and like all that kind of stuff so it was a lot of prospects that were actually tasked with the security job while a lot of the more veteran angels were just like partying um they're like they're like we got this in the bag like it's not yeah so it was a lot of the younger angels and a lot of the prospects that were like kind of in charge of the security Mm. and uh it led to just like a lot of like toxic masculinity basically just like trying to prove that they're super cool and trying to prove themselves um but yeah i mean there were some good ones so it's a little unfair to like be like every single one of them was bad, but I think that's the nature of the the Hell's Angels in general, yeah. too. Um, is that you know it's a big, big group of people, and there's going to be some that are racist, and some that are shitty in certain ways, and some that are going to be more violent, and then some that aren't and are just in a motorcycle club. Yeah. So you can't really define, you know, all of them in the same way. Um, I. Can I um, read a quick quote that was one of the one of the disturbing yeah. moments from the Rolling Stone yeah. article about the sort of how they were handling um, handling the uh, the crowd? Um, so Barger, Sonny Barger, who's the head of the Oakland chapter and kind of been sort of the patriarch of the Hell's Angels to this day, um, he wrote a whole book about it, and in the Rolling Stone. Uh, stone article he's quoted as saying um barger said the angels had tried not to be overly violent uh but nonviolence has its limits like and i'm quoting directly there was this fat naked broad who tried to climb on stage five angels had held her off but after a while it got to be a pain in the ass 
So finally we backed off and one of the cats let her have it. And that took care of that. Yeah. I don't know what that means, but it's yeah. just like, <laughs> that, yeah, that, they, they, yeah. T- they talk about this in, in it, in the uh, book as well. So, I mean, the angels at the point we are in this story that like no bands have really taken the stage. So we don't really know what's happening with, right. with the, with the angels yet. Um, but in in addition to like some of these bad omens, there were there was a death before the concert even started. Oh, main probably due to this bad acid. So, you know all the canals. There weren't more. To be you, honest. Yeah, you know all the canal trails in the Bay Area. How there's yeah. like in the Altamont Hills, it it runs downhill. These canal mm-hmm. trails. So, uh, Leonard, I think it's Kaisnak, K Y S N A K. Um, he's he would have been nineteen the following day. Um, climbed a fence and tried to swim across the canal to get to the festival, oh. and he was just immediately swept away by the cold water and drowned. That's the that's the drowning I read about. Okay, yeah, yeah, so they fi- they found him in a filter trap uh, oh, miles God. away, and it took days to identify who it was. Um, oh. And then another man who was on a horrible acid trip ran up to one of the ambulances and told them he was going to have a baby. So they were like, "What? Let's take him to the to the hospital." He then busted out of the ambulance and jumped out of the back of the into moving traffic. ambulance into traffic. Um, he survived, but he was severely injured because of that. Um, so some of the bands that were playing were, were some of the biggest bands in the San Francisco music scene at the time. So we're finally now getting to the point where all this is culminating. People are smacking sandwiches out of each other's hands, jumping out <laughs> of the back of ambulances, drowning in canals. Everyone's on bad acid or drunk or yeah. fucking exhausted. Whether or not they, they want to be on bad acid. Yeah, because they couldn't sleep the night before, so they're all exhausted. Yeah. And uh, everyone's irritable as fuck because irritable. like they couldn't get to the concert. So then they walked like 12 miles to get to this little patch of land that they have. And then 300,000 people are there. So now everyone's shoulder to shoulder, just completely congested. Um, so everyone's irritated. Yeah, basically. So Santana took the stage and, um, he had just busted out at Woodstock. Basically he became super famous because of his like, electric incredible set at woodstock yeah, and he's a baby and his drummer's a baby yeah, everyone's a baby <laughs> yeah they're all super young so this is some examples of violence so again it's like as this part of the concert kind of wears on this part of the podcast wears on there's going to be a lot more violence uh happening so if you're sensitive to that you should probably find a happier podcast <laughs> to listen to um go back to the beginning of this one yeah listen, just go back again. and listen to us talk about wine tasting <laughs> Um, so there was this, apparently this large, like naked fat man, um, who was on some horrible acid and he was like flailing a jug of wine and he was like the first casualty of the hell's angels. Um, they didn't like him. They didn't like the way he looked. They clearly, you know, he was disturbing people around him and they provided him just a vicious beating in full view of the concert goers and the artists. Wow. Um, they may have beat him to death if it weren't for the pleas of Pert, Bert Canningson, who they got the free ticket guru, or sorry, the, the not the free permit ticket, guy. the uh, free permit, uh, free yeah, concert he's like, permit wizard. That's enough, yeah. And also one of the Grateful Dead's inner circle, so he's super close with the Grateful Dead, and at this time he he thought he was cool with the angels but yeah. again this isn't just a san francisco chapter of hell's angels this is all over this is san jose oakland everyone yeah. so it's 
they don't know who he is. They might not know who mm. he is. Yeah. So Bert comes up and like pleads with them, like you're gonna kill him if if you don't stop. Um, wow. So they let up, you know, the fat dude, and we're gonna let him go. But right when he was like about to pass the last angel and go back in the crowd, the the large guy he um, he punched one of the angels and then just ran into the crowd and kind of disappeared and i can't i mean it's hard to disappear when you're like that but like it was kind of unavailable <laughs> to the angels after that point he kind of sucker punched one of the angels on his way out and got out of the way and um the angels were so pissed about this and they weren't able to like exact their revenge on that guy he disappeared in the crowd so they turned 000. on Canningson. um the ticket gr- the uh, free concert guru and oh, they God. beat him with pool cues um, senselessly, eventually let him go. He needed 60 stitches to fix the wounds in his head and neck. Jesus. So that was one casualty and then two casualties right away. And one of them was basically like San Francisco rock royalty at the time. He was one of the the main guys who made free concerts possible in the 60s. I just beat the and they just beat the shit out of him like he was nothing. Yeah. Um, so during the Santana set, the the angels constantly waded into the the crowd and just beat them with pull cues another six times in fact in just, the just in the forty five minutes whoever was bothering them anyone yeah. that they they thought was maybe being a little too rowdy thought was like trying to climb on the stage but meanwhile everyone's on acid and coke and Everyone's, excited because they're yeah. 10 feet away from the Rolling Stones. Like, picture well, they're any, 10 feet away from Santana. Sorry, yeah. at this point. And like, just picture any concert you've been to, like the people in the front row are like, kind of like whether leaning or not on they're the on stage, drugs. They're just leaning bit. on the stage. Yeah. They're just cheering. They're being rowdy because it's exciting. And like any, and plus all the drugs. And then, so any of that sort of energy is just going to get this like violence 100%. from the Hells Angels who are probably looking at this crowd of 300,000. By the way, I am never and not defending the Hells Angels or their actions or decisions, but I'm just trying to like think about the situation. And it's like, they're looking at this huge crowd and probably well, yeah. going like, if you were, if you were like, to like, and the book, you know, kind of put this into perspective. If you are, let's pretend you're not a hell's angel. Let's pretend like you're just a regular you're person. security. Yeah. yeah. And you see that you're completely overwhelmed and outnumbered. And like I said at, in the last, um, I think I said in the last podcast, I really should have said it in this podcast, the stage that they built, um, was originally for the Sonoma raceway, which the stage was naturally going to be on like this ridge above Everybody, so the stage didn't need to be that high. And um, at this concert, because it was in a bowl, it was was the complete opposite topography. Stadium seating, basically, right? Yeah, basically. The the, the bottom of it is the stage. Yeah. And then it just builds up. But they didn't have time to build a new stage. So they had this this shallow stage. It was less than four feet tall. Oh, that's horrible. So it, it was a very vulnerable stage. So just the photos give me anxiety, like a little stage, just, just as an artist on that stage, I would be like, Oh, I'm surrounded by a crowd that I can't get out of. So if you were to give a grain of like understanding to what the, the angels were up against at this point, it was that there was this entire mass of fucked up, like drunk concert goers pushing pushing to the stage and, and, uh, just being unruly and like, the only way that they 
dealt with it is what they knew best, violence. which was violence. And violence. they're like, if we can scare them into submission, yeah. then it'll be calm. And yeah. it's like, it probably wasn't the right move. And a- another, th- but it's like, it's hard. It's weird to think about the other side of the coin. Like what if they didn't offer any resistance and then all of a sudden the, the concert just, you know, the, the, the Santana got rushed and then he got like, fucking stomped and then next thing you know the band's like under underfoot you know it's like a crazy thought experiment to think about what could have happened but the whole thing was so bad that it it should have never been up to the angels to decide how to protect the stage yeah you know it's so anyway i kind of digress i kind of no but but totally but that's like the whole crazy psychology of it is is thinking like this situation should have never it was like really testing um, the human psyche and like a fight or flight in a lot of ways. And like this, everybody. And also sense of possession. Like this is mine. And feeling and like you're they're taking in my thing. Sense of possession, people feeling sort of like me versus them. Um, totally. There's a great psychology uh, saying scarcity breeds aggression. Oh, that's great. Yeah. You know, no. like let's pretend I remember in, in my psychology class when they were like, okay, let's pretend it's Christmas and you're at Toys R Us and you can't find a parking spot and why do you think you're getting in a fight with another car coming towards you trying to get that parking spot like at fucking Toys R Us during the holiday yeah. season? It's like because it, there's scarcity. So people get aggressive. Yeah. So that's the basic version of it is like Toys R Us. No, mom. that's great. And I'm then you, 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 you elevate that to like now there's scarcity of bathrooms. They said there was a 60th of how many bathrooms there should have been. Oh, there's scarcity of water. There's scarcity of like... Yeah, there's no running water at this there's event. There's no water. Everyone's on drugs. Everyone's And there's drunk. no vendors at this event either, I don't there's, think. It just looks like a like like hell to me. Like It's just like 300,000 people surrounding yeah. the stage. There's no, there's no way to get out. There's no whatever. And then people are on drugs and certain specific drugs that are going to make you aggressive. Also, they haven't had sleep. So their brain's going into like survival mode. Like, oh, like, you know, I, I just need to like survive. And then... Yeah, it's a fucking social experiment yeah. gone wrong. Like it's like, and now we're gonna take a motorcycle gang <laughs> who is used to dealing with certain situations with violence. Um, I think, I and think, yeah. put them against a crowd of three hundred thousand. I think it's 000. fair to say that the angels were probably fucking terrified. They're, I think, they're I think probably so. like the people who are actually so. in charge of like keeping people away. I'm sure they were like. I'm sure they were like, especially the newbies, the new guys, right? Yeah, there was all these like rushes or whatever. Sorry, uh, I mean they were. I mean they were contributing poorly too. Like so, another thing is there was this San Francisco chapter um, Angels bus bus on the side of Mm -hmm. the stage, and during the Santana set, the Angels bus who they were they were hopped up on these pilled called reds and their anger pills and basically what it is is a sleeping pill mixed with speed mm. so it makes people super fucking agitated because you get sleepy but then you also can't sleep because of that so it kind of what is the fun yeah that? it's too they're called <laughs> so, reds or anger pills they're uh, literally called anger pills back in the like late to 60s. make you angry not to help with your anger no yeah no they're called they called yeah. them angry pill or anger pills sorry yeah. and um so that bus uh had a whole bunch of angels partying on top of it with like their old ladies and all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. And they were just hurling full beers at the stage during the, Whoa. during Santana's set, like Dude. just out of control. Yeah. So they weren't contributing at all to like 
to they help were just that. partying yeah so one of my favorite stories is uh this gentleman uh named tony funches he was hired in los angeles he's a former uh navy boxing champion i believe yeah and uh he was hired as a bodyguard for the rolling stones hmm. so he got there early to kind of get the lay of the land and he was like oh fuck this like, <laughs> like this, this is gonna is be so... a shit show so he's on the stage too because it's his job also to be security but he's literally a security guy and like yeah. every, like the angels are not they're hired to be security but they're just you know they're they're what they, they are. don't have allegiance to the rolling stones no, yeah no. this guy does this guy does. Yeah. So he's um, he's on stage. Uh, he sees this young man like try to run across the stage, like you know ought to happen in these concert settings, and he gets tackled by some angels and just stomped out on the stage. And so he goes to them, and he tears the angels off of this guy, and um, he's he's you know like what the fuck are you doing like yeah. just throw him back in the audience like you don't need to like beat i'm an his actual ass. security guard telling yeah. you that you guys you are being ridiculous you don't need to yeah beat his ass in front of all these people and then make yeah. it like this escalated issue and the band's like holy shit yeah like could you imagine playing a radio key show and just having two like hell's angels like smash some dude and like stomp him, him out yeah. in the middle of our the stage like yeah it would be intense as hell and so he throws them off and they feel like, you know, emasculated and also hateful. So they start throwing like racial slurs at him. The security guard? Yeah, at Tony uh, Funches, the the, the uh, Rolling Stone security guard. So he challenges them to a fight backstage. And what? He, yeah, and he just beats their asses like bad. Love he, that. He knocks them both unconscious and breaks his right hand in the process. And uh, he he says later he went to the medical tent to get his hand fixed, and he saw that there was like literally no way you could get into the medical tent because of all of the shit that was happening. All the badass and trips, uh, yeah. so he just like reached over and grabbed some tape and just like taped up his hand and went back to the stage. He's like, I'm gonna go and, clock back in. <laughs> and he said the rest of the night, not a single angel looked at him sideways. <laughs> That's <laughs> so, fascinating to me because yeah. like I reading this Ro- Rolling Stones article like there's a there's a like an anonymous maybe he's not anonymous but guy that's like talking to Rolling Stone magazine and being like yeah I was there I saw all this violence happen and we haven't gotten into it so I won't get into that too much but he was like you know there was this kind of uh, inner monologue he had where he was like I should do something I should step in but everybody was what's what's the weird again the psychology of it it's like okay there's maybe like a hundred hell's angels and there's three hundred thousand audience members later and it's so like, later it was estimated that there was maybe around 40 hell's angels wow so it was so, less like but bec- like yeah the audience members this guy in particular he was right next to the violence and he's like no one else it's this crowd mentality if no one else steps in like you're you you're not like he wasn't he was like if i i was confident that if i had stepped in i would get murdered by the hell's angels like i would get stabbed to death because nobody was helping this guy Mm -hmm. so it creates this crowd mentality where it's like and i think one guy did jump on the hell's angels there were definitely some crowd members that like did try to get involved but like the the thing I, i think like the hell's angels are like a unit of like we are defending each other, we are a gang. We are. Well, it's like, like the movie Three Hundred, right? Yeah, you have we like, are you a have team. like the Spartans who are like guarding this exactly. tiny little like 
en- enclave and this pass yeah. from the greater Persian army, which is like unorganized and not quite well, as yeah. The there. audience is not. It's like, kind of the same concept. They, they, the audience they is not organized. Like, They're not like the guy next to you. I don't know that guy. I don't know the guy on the other yeah. side. Like I don't know if that guy's gonna come to rescue me. Yeah. But the Hell's Angels have that mentality. They're like, yeah. no matter what happens, my guys are gonna step in. Yeah. So forty Hell's Angels can. Can, can dominate, can dominate a pack 300, of 300,000 people, people just because of yeah. the, the mentality behind it. So at this point, Santana's done horrible set. I mean, actually, I mean, amazing set by them. They, like, yeah. they played very well. Like the, by all accounts. That's, an, that's another thing. Like, when by all accounts, about, they killed it. <laughs> yeah. When they're talking about like the Rolling Stone articles, like none of these, like all of these artists, like went like did a miracle by having a good set in this shit show situation. So, so Santana had an incredible set. When I said horrible set, I meant like in terms of the violence and everything going on outside. Everything happening. A guy getting stomped on stage, beer bottles being flung at them and full beer cans being flung at them from the side of the stage. I can't even imagine. Yeah. But, um, they left the maybe the biggest band in San Francisco at the time, Jefferson Airplane, now takes the stage. Oh wow! So they had just flown into SFO the prior night and didn't get us any sleep until about four a.m. So they were already ornery and tired. Oh no! And when they took the stage, they were road weary and restless. Um, they launched into the set and immediately saw the angels beating some poor young man in the audience. Shit! So they they were hit that the concert had bad vibes but they didn't understand what was happening with the angels like beating people right in front of the stage yeah so uh the vocalist of grace slick no not not grace slick marty oh the guy sorry yeah the guy vocalist marty balin uh he threw his tambourine whoa at the hell's angels and was like hey you gotta stop beat like what are you doing and uh started cussing him out he started cussing out the angels over the pa system Oh shit! So uh, one angel nicknamed Animal, and he was famous for wearing like a dead, uh, a dead animal hat. I think it's like a oh coyote, Ew. like a dead coyote hat, and uh, like a face of a dead coyote on his head. Yeah, like once a- Marty Balin like jumped in to try to separate the fray, he yeah. was knocked unconscious by Animal, and um, oh no, and. Uh, yeah, shocking uh, that the lead... How heroic, though, that he, the like... The singer, I mean... <laughs> I love that he threw his yeah. tambourine and he was like, hey, man, yeah. come on! Yeah, and uh, Grace Lake was like, hey, man, we all have to... Have, we, let's not put our bodies on each other unless it's for love. Like, love she's it. trying to, like, love do it. that whole love hippie it. thing. Yeah, unless do it's it. for love. Do it up. And, uh, and then one of the other guys who, I guess, didn't like Marty Balin was like, we uh, just had the Hells Angels knock out our singer, Marty Balin. And uh, we'd like to thank him for that. Oh, <laughs> like, wow. Such an awkward... So they had like a I don't know Fleetwood if he was being Mac sarca- dynamic. I don't, know, <laughs> I don't know if he was being like sarcastic, but it's such an awkward like thing to say. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, despite the airplane being the biggest band in the San Francisco music scene and all the years of experience they have with the Hells Angels. With the Hells Angels doing... Yeah, this isn't the first time the Hells Angels have done security for them. It's clear now that nobody is safe. Nobody is safe from the Hells Angels at this point. Yeah, if one of the one of the talent that the Hells Angels are supposed to be protecting was then beat up by the Hells Angels. At this point, it, the Hells Angels are in a us versus them yeah. in general mindset. And, and They're it, like, it's us versus them, it's us versus the audience, it's the Hells Angels versus anybody that is going to... 
Yeah, come and, after and us. these concert promoters and singers and performers have never the felt guy. so. Yeah, the permit guy, Kent. <laughs> uh, All these guys. Yeah, I think it's Ken, uh, Kenigston. Yeah, like these guys ha- never felt more helpless in a concert environment, and at this point, it's just completely clear that the only people who have control of the stage are the angels and they're going to like let you know what's appropriate. They're going to take the mic from you in the middle of a set. They're going to beat people on the stage off the stage. It doesn't matter. Like the Jefferson airplane didn't have any control. The Santana didn't have any control. And at this point it's just completely the angel stage. Yeah. So that was kind of the moment where it really became clear. So, Jefferson Airplane kind of did a half-assed rest of their set, and uh, Marty Palin like got dragged into a van, and uh, oh, no. like a super fucked up animal, the guy who beat him up, was like all tearful and apologetic about it. But then uh, Marty Palin was just like "fuck you, man," and then he got beat up again in oh, like backstage, and uh, it was just a, a mess. So now Graham Parsons, who is really good friends with Keith Richards. Um, and he he just started the band, uh, the Flying Burrito Brothers. I'm not oh, sure yeah, if you've ever heard of, of course. them. Yeah, and um, basically Richards was like, you can play the free concert and open for the Stones. Um, so Graham Parsons and his Flying Burrito Brothers uh, drove, or they flew. I think they flew to San Francisco from L.A. and then they tried to drive. Mm-hmm. So. They loaded into a station wagon, and on the way to the gig, they got caught up in the huge backup and started driving on the shoulder. And naturally, some guy who was also trying to get to the concert oh, saw shit. that they were driving on the shoulder yeah, and you know got upset like, oh, this guy's trying to cut me. Again, scarcity breeds aggression. Exactly. Right? This guy's trying to cut me. Yeah. Swerved in front of them and, and threw the Burrito Brothers off the road. <gasps> So they went spiraling into a ditch, and uh, they decided they were all okay. So yeah. they just abandoned the car. Whoa. And I mean, Graham Parsons, the Flying Burrito Brothers weren't making any money. They were not a very popular band at the time. They were like us. And, uh, they, yeah, they were like us. <laughs> and they, uh, they didn't have the money, but Graham Parsons was like a trust fund kid. So he, had, he didn't he care. He was like, we're fine. That, yeah, we're well, good. Well, he's like, I'm fine. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't okay. care yeah, about Yeah, I'm good. He, he like often like offered the band for like almost no money despite the rest of his band being like professional musicians who like needed the paycheck mm, but tough. he was like i'm making fifty thousand a month off of my like holy shit back like, then too it's yeah like, it, it's something crazy like, i don't like don't quote me on that exact number but it's something like something that. he's insane. a trust fund kid yeah so they actually got um they made their way to the stage by some Hell's Angels motorcyclists who were going by and they're like, hey, we're in the band. So the Hell's Angels put them on the back of their motorcycles and drove down over the hills to the backstage and brought the Burrito Brothers to the the concert. And they were the smallest band on the bill by far. And I think it says in the book, like, shockingly, everything was, you know, peaceful and quiet for their set. And I'm like, yeah, because no one knew who they were. No one's trying to clamor to get to the yeah, stage. They were just like, no one's oh, like losing their watching. mind. No one's flipping out. Like yeah. everyone's like, who? Whatever. And then they like sit down and that's So there's no there's no conflict there's between them and the Hells Angels. No violence during yeah. the Flying Burrito Brothers. Because no one's set. trying to rush the stage because yeah. it's not anybody recognizable. So absolutely no violence for that. Um 
I'm sure Graham Parsons thought it was the best thing of all time. He's like, dude, I just played in front of 300,000 people. Yeah. And he actually has a really sad story. <laughs> he ended up dying like very shortly afterward. Oh, no. Um, so should Google that at some point if you're interested in Graham Parsons. He was, a, he was an interesting character. Um, so at this point, uh, the Rolling Stones were just arriving in their helicopters because that's how these bigger bands were getting to the stage. Not the Burrito Brothers, but bands yeah. like the Rolling Stones and the Grateful Dead are being helicoptered in. Yeah. So Mick Jagger arrived, and the first thing Jagger sees is a young man who made his way backstage, completely fucked up on drugs. He's like, fuck you, Mick Jagger. I hate you. And he punches Mick Jagger in the face, oh, dropping heard, yeah. him to the ground. The man was immediately taken down, and uh, that was how Mick Jagger and the and the Stones were introduced to this concert. Yeah, and uh, the dead arrived on the very next helicopter coming in, the Grateful Dead. So when the dead touched down, they were completely messed up on a new drug called STP, which was apparently a, a much more potent form of LSD that Owsley had whipped up. Jesus, and they took a lay of the land, and they were just like, "What the." fuck is going on and they were frantically warned by members of santana and jefferson airplane that the concert was a disaster like you gotta get out of here just go yeah this is to the grateful dead jerry garcia special who they're buddies with they're very close with yeah there was violence it was only getting worse um they saw that bert kennington the the concert guru guy had gotten his ass beat and um, he he usually you know wore like a big cowboy hat, and he had like his head completely wrapped around with his sixty stitches. Oh, God. And they're just like, oh my god, our guy, is, you know, is beat up. No and, one's um, nobody's safe. An, yeah, and another one <laughs> exactly. of their best friends had tried to like stop Animal from from beating up uh, Marty Balin backstage. Mm-hmm. I didn't write his name down, but he's a uh, another one of like the inner circle of the Grateful Dead. And he was like one of the, like the actual like tough guys in the Grateful Dead. So he was kind of like their last line of defense. And after he tried to like stop Marty Balin from being beat up, he was knocked unconscious by the hell's angels. So he was kind of struggling too at that point. Um, so they saw two of their inner circle completely like violated by the hell's angels. And they're, they, uh, all climbed in with a van with Rock Scully, the their you know their manager and the guy who's mm-hmm. it was kind of his baby this uh, tour the idea he was the one who like went to London with you know all the acid and like pitched the idea of the free concert to the Rolling Stones yeah. way back in the beginning of our story last podcast. Um, they were discussing whether or not um, they should play the Grateful Dead. Mm-hmm. Um, they soon decided that it would be best not to, and they allow the Stones to go on earlier and bring this whole debacle to a close and just just finish it. Just out. finish it. Just stop yeah. it. So they confirm their decision, and the Angels refuse to let him out of the van for what? for a period of time. It doesn't specify how long they didn't let the Grateful Dead leave their van, but they said the the Angels didn't let the dead leave the van for like a certain amount of time. So they're basically held prisoner in this van backstage for a period. And once they finally got out, they got the fuck out of there and they got on the next helicopter and left. And, um, now Crosby stills Nash and young were, uh, starting to try to make their way to the concert. Oh no. So they ended up, I think 
they uh, they ended up stealing a car from the Tracy Airport. It says to make the gig, which is crazy. But apparently, they stole a car to get there, and they could they could just sense the tension, and they were made aware that the dead weren't playing, so they had to you know eventually go on. Um, so they took the crowded stage, and the the beatings of the crowd from the angels started almost immediately over again because. Crosby still they were out yeah they were they were popular at the time yep. and people you know again are trying to get to the stage um, one angel on the front of the stage had a, a sharpened uh, spoke from a motorcycle wheel oh god and um, every time Stephen Stills would step to the mic to sing he'd poke him in the leg with it and stab him in the leg what the fuck yeah uh, Stephen Stills uh, his le- his leg was bleeding profusely through his jeans by the end of the set. And uh, he had another set later in Los Angeles, and after that set, he ended up passing out. So he didn't. Stephen Stills did not have a good time. Um, what the crowd? So by by this time, you know, beatings were abundant. I can only say it so many times. Like there were just abundant beatings at this festival, and um, now the Stones were finally about ready to go on stage. They're sitting backstage. I think they're also like in a van or something like that or a trailer. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, they hear whispers of what's going on outside, but they don't really know what's going on because they don't see it until they get to the stage and then they see the beatings and the violence and then they're like, oh, that's what's happening. Like they hear whispers, but they don't actually see it, you know? And um, so... At this point, there's basically no food and water at this entire thing. Yeah. And uh, because the dead didn't play, the Stones want to wait for night night to fall. I heard about this. They're like, quote, Because unquote, they have this awesome, they're like, waiting. lights light yeah, setup. Yeah, they, they don't want it to be light out when they take the stage. And they're like, the stars come out at night. And so, Which they don't, they don't know what the desperation that's going on, you know? They, and, like and I like said, they the, hear rumors, but they don't actually yeah, they don't, see they don't it. They're, they're kind of sequestered in their own little bubble. Yeah, and I'm sure they've played crazy shows, so they're like, oh, here's just another crazy, crazy show, yeah. and like, yeah. So it was uh, right about this time, like right when Crosby Stills was playing and the huge downtime that followed. Um, Which just was, makes people more aggravated. Yeah. Yeah. During this time, Denise Kaufman, she was uh, one of the first all-female um, groups from the city that like played all their own instruments and wrote their own songs. Oh, cool. Um, they're called Ace of Cups. Mm. Uh, she was sitting with her husband on the hills. She was 22 years old and five months pregnant. Um, the next thing she knew, she was waking up from being un- knocked unconscious. Someone had thrown an unopened beer can from higher up on the hill as high as they could. And then it came crashing down on the back of her skull. Jesus. So someone's just, people in, people theorize that it could have been from the Hells Angels, but there's no evidence of this. Yeah, it, it it, it's just someone threw asshole. a beer, like a full can of beer, as high as they could, you know, football, Hail Mary style. Because they don't understand physics. And, and they're uh, like, it oh, travels yeah. down the hill, cracked her in the back of the skull. Um, after making her way to the medical tent, um, it became clear that she had a fractured skull. Oh my God. She was airlifted in San Francisco, and they decided that brain surgery was required. And because local anesthetic and intravenous uh, anesthetics would threaten the child, she basically had no more relief than you might have at a dentist for her brain surgery oh that she ended God. up having. So she's five she, months pregnant. She ended up being okay, but I mean, that is a harrowing experience. Completely yeah. being awake while someone's picking 
pieces of your skull out of your brain, basically, is what happened to her. Jesus. And the Ace of Cups, they never really amounted to anything per se. They kind of gained fame later and, like, all got together in, like, their 40s or 50s and recorded a record. But wow. they don't really have anything recorded other than live, like, kind of shoddy live recordings of them at the actual time. But it's kind of sad because... Ace of Cups, I think, could have been like a hugely influential, like all female fronted band back mm-hmm. in the day, and it just never came to be. And it might have been because of this. Uh, I mean, she can't be fully. Uh, I mean, maybe she did a full recovery, but I, I would I imagine think it would she had her. a full recovery. And you know, I could be totally wrong because I actually didn't write down how she did because I'm not sure it even said I how mean, she. I mean, 22, you have brain surgery, like. Uh, yeah. So at this point, uh, Sonny Barger, he was the president of the Oakland Hells Angels chapter. Um, He was in club meetings for the majority of the day, but he started to make his way, you know, down to Altamont and he rode out with 10 other, you know, high ranking officials. And it was at this time that they kind of drove down behind the crowd, just through the hills. People are scattering to get out of their way, just driving through a crowded concert on their motorcycles. Yeah. And, he kind of made the the executive decision that he would line up all of their motorcycles in front of the stage huh. so to create a natural barrier between the stage and the crowd because in his mind oh. he's like everyone knows not to touch a Hell, hell's angels motorcycle so if they mess with our motorcycles then we have an excuse to mess with them then we have an excuse basically. to beat them up yeah. but also i mean it was it was a I guess it was kind of like a better idea than not having anything. Yeah. But interesting. It ended up kind of backfiring in a way oh, 100%, too. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Um, because then it gave again, it gave them an excuse. Oh, you're touching it. Oh, you're touching my bike. Yeah. Oh, you're doing this. Oh, you're doing that. And yeah. So we're probably going to actually do one more part of this Altamont series because we realize that there's still quite a bit to talk about. And um, it's awesome how thorough you're. Uh, you're I hope. Going. I, I hope so. It. I hope it's not too boring. Um, no, I, I'm. I've just been so in awe this whole time. So it was right when um, Sonny Barger and the the chapter kind of started pulling their bikes in front of the stage to create a partition that uh, the Stones bodyguard, Tony Funchess, noticed a young black man in the audience in a bright green suit with his young white girlfriend. Um, He looked over to the angels on the stage, and it seemed that they've all noticed the couple as well. Mm. So it seems like, you know, it's like feeding time at the zoo, and, like, everyone's, like, staring at the the same thing. You know, they have, like, this this look in their eyes. Um, So this is... Patty Breedhoft and Meredith Hunter Murdoch. They were, again, an interracial couple from Berkeley, California. Meredith uh, Hunter, he's actually the guy. His name's Meredith, so it's kind of an androgynous name, I guess, but he's a guy. And um, he was only 18 at the time, which is crazy to think about. And uh, he had been in detention centers and youth jails for most of his life, but everyone kind of thought, that the charges that were levied against him were kind of bullshit to yeah, like wouldn't be not to come up with a better term, but <laughs> yeah, just like kind of totally. And, um, and I mean, he, he was like into drugs recreationally and he was, and he did have a gun on him, but it's believed that he wasn't, he didn't, he was never accused of or convicted of a violent crime ever. Yeah. And he was very popular with the ladies. Very popular. Aww. 
So it was right here when the Stones hit the stage a full two hours after Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young stopped. So, yeah, so picture yourself at any concert where you see the opening act, which is somebody, good or bad, and you're like, okay, so you wait through that whole set. Maybe there's another opening act. You wait through that whole set, and then there's like usually like a 20 to 30-minute break where all you know, the stagehands are taking over, and you're just standing there waiting, waiting, waiting. You're kind of fucked up. You know, you're like, oh, there's no I, water, no I food, pee? I have to pee. no bathroom. I can't go anywhere. Should I, you know, I can't, I need to get more. Well, people are literally shitting energy. and pissing everywhere. Oh, like, there's no bathroom. they are. So there's just like human waste everywhere. Yeah, and everyone's uh, hungry, everyone's thirsty. Everyone's fucked up and coming down from that and then getting irritable. And yeah. then you're waiting two hours. And also, yeah. like, the, the, the thing that's maddening about that is it's not like, Someone came out to the crowd and said, hey, it's 4 p.m. The stones are coming out at 6 p.m. Yeah. There's no end in sight. Yeah. They don't fucking know when they're coming. And that makes you crazier because you're like, okay, an hour's past, you're a little crazy. 90 minutes past, you're a little crazy. Two hours past, you're a little crazy. You just don't, there's no end in sight. So yeah. that's almost more of a mind fuck where you're just like, they could be coming out any minute. So I don't want to miss them coming out by getting water or whatever you have to do yeah. so you're just standing there yeah. and it ends up being two hours so that anyway that is alone a so, recipe for them to turn on you yeah so that's going to be part two uh part for three. altamont oh sorry that was yeah part that two. was <laughs> that's going to be part two and then we're going to get into part three next yeah. week um it this has gone a little bit longer than we thought it was going to but I think it's important to kind of detail everything oh, I, that's I'm happening. Fascinating. Especially yeah. paint the full picture of what's happening because yep. a lot of people are just like, angels beat up a lot of people, and then what happens next week, you'll find out. And that's pretty much it. But they don't understand like everything that went into it and yeah. like all of the failures, not just the large failures, but the small failures. And, yeah. um, and just the the series of events there's really that led no, to like a perfect really, storm. Yeah, there's really no heroes in this story. It's other sad thing. And there's just yeah. like almost no heroes. There's a few, like obviously the medical staff that was volunteering were huge heroes. Mm -hmm. um, but beyond that, I mean, it's just a lot of hubris at play, and a lot of a lot of violence and a lot of uh, tragedy. Yeah. But um. Anyway. We don't really have a ton of news for Radio Keys this week. Um, it's actually, funny, funnily enough, it's not funny, I guess, but funny enough, I looked uh, today and saw that it was a year ago that we started doing the shelter sessions, which was our, oh, wow. our project that we started right when the initial lockdowns happened. So we started releasing an album, and initially it was one song a week that we recorded um, and then eventually put on the album called The Shelter Sessions. So... Happy one-year anniversary to oh, the nice. shelter session nice. starting. Yeah. And uh, if you haven't heard it, you can check us out at RadioKeysMusic.com and check out our record, The Shelter Sessions, as yeah. well as the debut record, Radio Keys. We're on Spotify. We have vinyls. We are God, finally, we have vinyls. We have vinyls. Buy them. <laughs> Take <laughs> them. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. And... Um, and yeah, I'm looking forward to next week to really get into the uh, the climax of this horrible, perfect storm of a situation. Yeah, so please, everybody, uh, hopefully that wasn't too big of a bummer. <laughs> hopefully you're not just like super bummed out. That's why we're, we're here. You uh, know? <laughs> I mean, we're here for that, but also <laughs> for the history like... history and the... Dude, I, I mean, it's... 
uh, it took me a long time to read this book. I just finished it today, to be honest, because it's heavy reading, like reading yeah. about all of the violence and all of this stuff. And hopefully it doesn't feel the same way here. I, I want people who like haven't read the book and want a clearer picture of this event to like really understand it. You know, and th- again, this is like an hour and a half podcast. The podcast we did last time was a little over an hour. So it's literally, you know, one fifth the length of the actual whole book so yeah well and i think that um you made a great point earlier about like woodstock 69 being sort of glorified when horrible things happen and then history repeats itself and and things well yeah you know bad planning leads to horrible things and like i i didn't know a lot of the of the poorly planned details of this and i find it fascinating so yeah yeah Hopefully, all right. hopefully other people do too. Well, hopefully you all enjoyed that. And you can check us out at RadioKeysMusic.com. Please, uh, if you haven't already, leave a review for our podcast if you enjoy it on iTunes or Apple Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Mm. And uh, it would do us a big favor getting more into the al- algorithm there. Um, so thanks again for listening. My name is Stuart. I'm Emily. And we're going to keep searching for that sweet soul music. For that sweet song, music gonna cure his